You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Before we get into our episode today, I just want to thank all of our listeners. Really appreciate the support. You know, the show has really gone off to a great start and we continue to grow. And we've got a really a lot of fun things up and coming in the near future for the summer and, and coming into the fall. Also, if there's anything you'd like to hear that we're not asking some of these millionaires, some questions you'd like answered or something maybe we're not building on, please reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're work- we continue to work on uh, other things with the podcast, audio quality. We're adding some rapid-fire questions, and we have also have a lot of new professions build up. So we have some exciting interviews coming up in the next couple months, and uh, we look forward to sharing them. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the show we have Meg. Meg, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Sure, absolutely. Hi, guys. Um, I'm Meg, and I'm a 30-something banker living in a major city in Texas. My husband is also a banker. Um, We met at work, and we both kind of moved up the ladder in banking and really tried to maximize our incomes there and, and our savings rate as well. Um, I've invested in some residential real estate, uh, in my twenties prior to getting married. And so those are really starting to, uh, appreciate and pay off as well. So we're kind of, um, investing both in stocks and in real estate, approximately 50, 50 these days. Awesome. And what is your current net worth? Our current net worth is 3.3 million, uh, after the market dropped last week. And that is broken down in almost exactly a million dollars stocks and bonds and about 60 grand in cash reserves. And our residential real estate equity is about 920000 And then restricted investments of about 360000 And um, I generally go from, I was pretty much 0% bonds most of my life. But again, like I said, I got married four years ago. And he's always been a good saver, but didn't really have a strong like investment policy statement, if you will. So we've, I, we kind of backed off and put a little bit in bonds um, as the market has really ramped up the last 18 months. I've kind of put a little bit more in bonds, but it's the same to do actually, I guess, sort of market time a little bit. Um, so as, as things really seem to get heated, I, I kind of moved a little bit. So I would say my range is pretty, pretty much zero to 20% for fixed income and cash. Um, and it fluctuates in there depending on what's going on. Okay, so I want to ask you, you said you kind of came together and you guys both had different strategies. How, how did you kind of come together and, and decide what you were going to do together? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, well, he kind of allows me to delegate. He delegates a lot of that to me just because I've always been sort of the personal finance nerd. And he's definitely, you know, he's a banker as well, like I said, so he's he's not unfamiliar with investments. But I don't even really remember what his broth was in. He's a little bit more of a stock picker than I am. I used to do a little bit of that what I call play money and like a brokerage account. So he still does in his IRA have some individual stocks that he just picks, which kind of drives me crazy. Um, last year he wanted to buy some oil and gas stocks, which, you know, again, he's not trying to go out and buy a fancy new car. So I pretty much don't argue with him for whatever he wants to do. Um, but I would say it's a lot more of just an ad hoc sort of what sounds like it might be good this year. or What are people talking about? I mean, it's, it's definitely not a elegant strategy that we really are into in that, but that's a super small, maybe a few percentage points of everything. Um, cause he didn't have much in his Roth IRA. So 
other than that, we pretty much just agreed, hey, let's just dump it in index funds. So that's kind of just set up kind of automatically. We don't really talk about it a lot. So take us back to when y'all were dating and, and kind of when you began this journey separately, when you didn't really know each other. What were those conversations mm-hmm. like when you were dating and, and kind of getting into the the uh, marriage talks of, hey, here's my financial life, this is your financial life? What did that go like? Yeah, that was uh, really interesting. When we met, um, I guess it was kind of six years ago because we dated for a couple of years. I actually made more than he did, which is not the case now. Um, he was just starting out his banking career, even though he's older than I am. He had had a separate career and then went back to grad school and got his MBA. So he had kind of started out in banking. You know, I was kind of several years up the ladder, if you will. And so um, that was different, again, because he was older than me and had a graduate degree, which I don't, yet I made more. Um, and at the same time, he had definitely been a good saver, but started kind of with nothing. And, and his parents, I don't think, have college degrees. And, you know, he kind of came from more of a blue collar background. And I, on the flip side, had a huge head start. My parents paid for college. And um, also, I had a college fund quite a bit left in it when I graduated, which is what I was able to use to start investing in real estate. So, you know, um, we definitely were coming at it from different angles, which I think was a little bit of an issue, not in that he cared or that I cared, but mainly just from our mindsets being a little bit different. And, um, you know, he was just starting to make really good money. And so in the whole us versus them world of finance, it was more of a, he was becoming the them (laughs) that he'd always, you know, so I think for him, it was a little bit more of an identity shift, but, um, my net worth when we got married was about 900 K and his was about 120. So we became millionaires basically the day we got married and we always combined finances from day one. Um, one of the things we had basically talked about in the dating world was that was basically one of the reasons to get married. So I know a lot of couples don't combine finances or don't combine fully, but for us, it was kind of like, well, that's kind of one of the main points, basically building a family and building wealth together um, are kind of the two reasons that we see. And we did agree on that. So that was not something we had to convince each other of. So we didn't get a prenup. We didn't um, really do any of that. Uh, We talked about everything. We've always been pretty open about it, but um, it was definitely uh, eye-opening, I think, probably for both of us just to set goals together. But um, we opened a joint checking account and closed our individual accounts, uh, you know, while we were engaged. So it's, we're both in it together now. That's awesome. So take us back to, to your journey. You know, you shared with us that, that this kind of had begun, begun back when you were a teenager. How did your interest yeah. in finance and, and dealing with money kind of generate from? Yeah, sure. Um, my dad was a stockbroker before I was born, actually, but he was a business owner when I was young and also was a landlord. So he kind of had that entrepreneurial mindset and always made it a point to teach us um, about money, about savings. It was always a big ordeal to go to the bank. Uh, I think I've had a bank account since I was like eight or nine years old, uh, basically as long as I can remember. So we would always go and deposit money after holidays and withdraw money to go buy each other for Christmas presents and that kind of thing. So looking back, I think it was really ingrained upon me from an early age, which I'm really lucky about. But um, I stumbled upon a Motley Fool book actually when I was 13 on a road trip uh, with my grandparents. And we didn't have iPads back then. So I read the whole thing cover to cover because I was so bored. And, um, this was back in the nineties. So I think it was probably one of the initial books touting, you know, discount brokerage accounts, which I decided I needed one of those because those compound interest charts that we all love so much that show, you know, a 25 year old starts investing and his twin brother waits till he's 35. And, you know, the 
35 year old invests their whole rest of his life, but the 25 year old ends up with more money on, you know, those charts. But, um, I couldn't find one for a 15 year old. Like I kept trying to be like, what about like, what if you start sooner? And of course you didn't really have the internet then to go make these charts up yourself. So that really piqued my interest. Um, as weird as it sounds. And I told my dad, I wanted to open one of these accounts and I remember him laughing at me, which really confused me, but he let me do it and he matched my savings. So I think I had like $2,000 of, or whatever in my savings account that I, um, he probably matched and I picked six stocks according to their foolish four investment strategy, which was later debunked. But, um, yeah, so I've, I've basically been investing in stocks since I was 13 years old. Um, and he, you know, I started filing my taxes that year too, even though I didn't make enough to have to, he, he kind of prompted me, um, made me do it myself, but, but was like, well, here's what you got to do now. Um, so by the time I went to college, I found out I had a college fund from my grandparents and I would get to keep whatever was left which I had no idea about growing up. I grew up in a rural area uh, in the Southeast. So um, despite the fact that my parents probably had significant savings, it, you know, it wasn't so much of a wealthy mindset or just assuming that things would be taken care of. So um, I was really excited to hear that and actually changed my college choice as a result. I was planning to go to like a $40,000 a year school, which back then was like one of the top five most expensive schools. So I switched to like a $25,000 a year school and, um, graduated, I, I probably had a quarter of a million remaining in my college fund when I graduated. So I definitely had a huge head start there, uh, net worth wise. That's awesome. And uh, when did you kind of make the switch from investing in these individual stocks when you were a teenager to, you know, pursuing the strategy of more of a, a an index fund strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. So while I was in college, um, I figured out how to get my scholarship paid in cash, which was like 2,500 a semester. Um, and so I ha- was actually investing in a Roth IRA. Uh, so I graduated, I already had like 12 grand in my Roth IRA from my part-time jobs and everything um, that I was able to do. But it was I, during college, I think I, I had always kept reading and learning. And for whatever reason, I had a Scott Trade brokerage account for those individual stocks. And um, my when I opened an IRA, I did it at Vanguard. And I just never even occurred to me to pick stocks. So that I was like 17 or 18 whenever I did my first Roth IRA. I just did passive index funds from day one in that. So the Scott trade account remained. I don't think the balance was ever over 10 K or 12 K. And that was just kind of my fun money that I would, I remember when Toyota had a big recall or when bank of America tanked, you know, I would buy stocks of companies I'd heard of basically zero strategy whatsoever, even though I was a finance major and I actually interned at Smith Barney and wealth management. Like I was around a lot of people with a lot of complicated systems and, but I honestly never really adhered to any of that. So I, uh, wherever I read about index funds, I started doing that really from day one when I was, uh, in college. So interesting. Yeah. So I want to dive into that, that a little bit. So you have, you know, to repeat about 60 K in cash, 190 K in a brokerage account, about eight twenty five in retirement and HSA, and then 350 K in, in restricted investments. So talk about, mm-hmm. you, first of all, I guess, what are those restricted investments? You kind of mentioned a, a bit earlier. Yeah, all of those have accumulated in the last two to three years. Uh, six of those, which I'm trying to, probably about 300 grand, most of it is uh, six different multifamily real estate investment projects. Um, and then I guess 60 of that is this tech accelerator startup um, tech startup accelerator, obviously not my wheelhouse, but um, my husband actually knew somebody from grad school that started this accelerator. And so we put 50K into that a couple of years ago. And that was one of those 
that, that could totally be worthless or one of those companies could get sold to Google and, you know, we make 250. I mean, it, it's really sort of a shot in the dark, I think, or I think of it as, although um, angel investing is not something I've done too much of and that kind of thing with the super startup type of thing. But at the same time, we'd both appreciate that we're sort of contributing to these very small companies that, you know, we're at least pro- providing them and I don't want to equate it to charitable giving, but in a sense, I feel like it's more of a community thing where even if we don't ever make a lot of money from that and we get to write off the loss, um, you know, we feel good for kind of participating in that. And we get to go to a lot of the investor events and it's good for our networking and stuff too. So that was kind of a, not something we're necessarily married to as an investment strategy, but we decided to do and and just dip our toe in the water. So TBD on how that turns out. Yeah. So how, Um, how is that structured? Is there, is there any sort of, I mean, I'm just trying to think of the operating room. Is there any sort of preferred return or, or is it just as it goes or how did you leave it with them once you, once you gave that money? I don't think it's a preferred return. It's set up like an LLC, I know. And basically, I don't know, we own 2% of it or what have you. And there's some complicated um, uh, agreements, I think, between the startups themselves and the, the company, the accelerator, the fund, if you will. And so... Um, they don't get a portion of the earnings or anything as they go. I think it's really just um, if there's any kind of sale or uh, event, you know, on their end, um, you know, we basically, I think they, to participate in the accelerator, they had to give up, I think, 8% of their equity to the fund. So um, it's really a sort of an eight to 10 year timeline, they say usually of, of hold period to see, you know, uh, if and when. Usually, even if these companies don't want to get sold, I guess the standard that we've been told is they'll buy out their equity back from the fund at some point. Um, you know, if they want to stay, just stay own, uh, owner uh, owned by the managers, I guess, indefinitely. So, again, I'm not really super well-versed on the intricacies of how it works, but some of the previous funds have done really well. I think this is like the eighth or ninth one this company's doing, so we shall see, but gotcha. um, I don't plan to put a ton more in those kind of things. But again, if it's like one to 3% of our net worth over time, I mean, that might be something we're kind of comfortable with. Sure. Sure. So now going to the real estate. So if you have six syndications at 300, I assume that's about, you know, $50,000 each, give or take. Mm-hmm. When did you decide, yep. Hey, I want to kind of pivot and start doing some things in real estate. And, and why did you decide to move in the direction of syndications versus, you know, perhaps doing something on your own? or buying a rental property yourself? Yeah, that's kind of an ongoing uh, debate I still have, and my husband and I still have. We both have really uh, accelerated in our careers the last few years, and since getting married and moving and all those things, we haven't bought anything ourselves uh, directly other than the townhome that we live in now, which we do plan to convert to a rental if and when we ever move. Um, But it's kind of just been a much more passive, uh, well, plus, you know, reaching accredited investor status with marriage opened us up to some of these opportunities that I wasn't able to do on my own previously. So um, I think a lot of it is just what opportunities kind of come in front of you. Um, we, most of these, I think five out of these six real estate deals are all through one investor group that happened to be the realtor who sold me my first duplex. That was like $130,000 back in 08. And he, like at the time, like I said, he was doing pretty small time, you know, real estate deals as a realtor and he and his partner have really uh, grown, and now they're you know solely doing these multifamily sort of fix and flip, uh, you know, buy like a C class apartment building and maybe C plus, 
usually like if their, their niche, I think is stuff that maybe if it was built in the seventies or eighties, that hasn't had a major, major renovation, they'll buy it and do a facelift on it, add some amenities, uh, and then rehab half the units and then either sell or refinance in two to three years. So that's kind of their model. Um, and like I said, I just happen to know the guy. So, uh, it kind of was one of those things that fell into our lap that, um, actually before I got married years ago, I wanted to participate in one of his deals and I wasn't accredited. So I actually structured it where I was a lender. Um, and he really needed some capital to get his first deal going. And since I, I basically got a first lien on the property and, um, helped him on that. And I think it was like a one, six or 8%, which to me felt risk-free because it was like a 50% loan to value or something. But the only reason I even was in that position was because I couldn't participate on the equity side. Um, but he had a few more successful deals and I never really had enough money. Even my husband and I together after tax, cause we were maxing out our retirement, um, you know, and buying our first home and other expenses. So um, they, we watched them though. I knew him. And so they had had several successful deals quotes, you know, that sold. And so we started investing with them a couple of years ago and it's kind of started putting 25 in. He let us do a little bit less. They like to have 50 or a hundred, I think minimum, but cause he knew me, we were able to do a little bit less. And so we've ramped it up where the last one we put, I think 75 in. So, and a couple of those have sold. So we haven't, we're basically debating now whether we let these gains um, roll into 1031 exchanges, which they tend to do. They try to find new deals before they sell one so that their investors can roll the equity tax-free into the next deal. But that's a lot of money for us too, to have in one deal. Like the, the $75,000 one is about to probably sell and we're debating, well, do we, if we're going to get 140 grand back out of that, cause it's about a um, basically two X return in two years. Do we really want 140 grand in one deal um, or, but is it worth paying the capital gains tax to take it out? So fun problems to have. And luckily this one has been so far so good. So um, we are branching out. We have one deal with a different group just because we've got a lot of money with, you know, two guys that they both get hit by a bus might be kind of an issue. So. Sure. Sure. Try and diversify a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And have you been happy with how each of those syndicated deals has worked out so far? Yeah, I have, but I'm, you know, I think like a lot of people kind of concerned is the multifamily market reaching a peak. Um, just like everything though. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. If you have cash, you've got to put it somewhere, but bonds, stocks, real estate, everything kind of seems overpriced. So, um, but you don't want to let stuff sit in cash just cause you're waiting for a crash either. I mean, one of the things I think that I've benefited from is sort of naively just dumping money into whatever opportunities right in front of me, uh, at various points in my life. So in hindsight, not all of those were the best deals. I mean, some of the rentals I bought, I just bought full retail price off MLS, you know, so I didn't know any better. But, you know, buy and hold usually works, even if it's not the absolute best return you could have gotten. I'm still glad I got started at 23 versus, you know, waiting and trying to optimize. And, you know, you get a little analysis paralysis trying to find the absolute best strategy. And meanwhile, you might miss five or eight years in the market um, you know, where things are probably at least statistically going up one way or the other. Right. So you have these syndicated deals on one side and then you have some of your own rentals uh, on the other. How many how many of your own rentals do you guys have? Yeah, I actually sold two of them last year. So it was the first time I'd ever sold anything. Um, so right now we have three duplexes and then a townhome as well as the townhome we live in. So um, four properties, but what is that? Seven units. And you and you self-manage all those? Are they all locally? No. Um, 
I actually, uh, I feel like I think later, usually you ask like, what's your biggest mistake? And one of mine, what I was going to mention is managing my own rentals, which I did do for four or five years initially. Um, when I first got into residential real estate, I thought it, you know, I didn't want to pay 10% to somebody else to manage them. Um, I can do anything right. So I did it myself, but I also thought at the time, you know, what if I quit work and have kids one day, this will be what I do. And I can just, you know, have my baby on my hip and come manage my rentals. And, you know, which now I'm just like that nothing sounds worse to me than that. But um, that's kind of what I thought. So I was like, I got to learn how to do this. This might be my contribution one day. Um, but anyway, so I did um, spend a lot of time doing that. And it was probably penny wise and pound foolish, I think, in hindsight. Um, actually, once I hired a property manager, my net cash flow went up. So it's definitely not been something I've regretted for a second. I am really glad for the lessons I learned, um, you know, negotiating with contractors and trying to chase down tenants for rent, negotiating and um, all those things. You know, it's, it's good life skills, I guess, but it was not probably the best for my, my returns on my rental properties. So some of the people that we've interviewed, and, and of course, some of the listeners are well, are, are 100% invested in, in the markets or in cash and are looking to get into real estate. So being you know involved in both syndicated deals and properties on your own, where would you advise them to start? Do they start? Obviously, it depends if, if they are an accredited investor. Would you advise them to get in you know to a syndication or or buy a duplex or a townhouse or or something bigger? What would you recommend? I definitely think it depends on your personality a little bit. Um, my mother, for instance, had a couple of rentals and she had them professionally managed too, and she just dumped them this year because she can't stand it. Like even just getting an email from the property manager about a washing machine overflowing or something that she will never even see, like makes her nuts. So, and she's always kind of been like that. My dad always loved being a landlord and going over there himself with a plunger and saving $200. And, you know, she was like the polar opposite. So I've kind of seen both sides of that from a personality perspective. I really think you have to listen to that. Um, It takes a little more capital. Well, I guess it doesn't really, because most of these syndicated deals are probably going to have a fairly high minimum. Um, But but more diversification, you might, you know, theoretically people with more experience managing them for you. So I think that's an easy, much more actually passive way to go about it. So if you've got a big career, you're working 10 hour days, um, you know, you don't want to mess with it yourself, I think, and you already, and you have the money and, you know, to do syndicated, I think that can be a really good opportunity. But at the same time, the returns are pretty good on residential real estate. If you're using leverage, even if you break even, which I have done on some of mine, I've even had negative cash flow on some of my rentals for years overall. I mean, not every year, but, um, or I would have sold them, but, um, you know, if you even just break even and have 2% growth a year, and I think the four and a half percent mortgage at 30 year am that I've is the example I've looked at where you get about 15 to 17% return on your investment. Um, even just breaking even. So basically picking a pretty mediocre full price rental, which again is something that I have done and, um, you know, in the early days, but I still hold on to some of them because now it's been, you know, eight years. So, uh, some of them have really appreciated unexpectedly. Of course I got started in 0809 when things weren't as, as hot. Um, so I got lucky on a couple of mine that really appreciated, but even the ones that haven't appreciated much, um, they cash flow. So, I mean, I think basically my advice is just to get started and not try to overthink it. Your first deal, you maybe even lose money. I mean, but you'll learn a lot. You'll start meeting those contacts. You'll, you know, figure out how to do the tax returns, like all those stuff, that stuff you can read as many books as you want, but until you actually have to do it, you really don't figure it out. So, I mean, my advice would be just 
find an opportunity and better now than 20 years from now. Awesome. One thing you've shared with us, uh, with your, with your financial situation is you've got some deferred comp and, and you've dealt with some RSUs. Do you want to just kind of talk a little bit about how you've navigated through that and maybe explain what an RSU is for some of our listeners that don't know? Yeah, for sure. Um, RSU is restricted stock unit. So it's typically a publicly traded company that you work for that, um, might award you restricted stock units, which is often used as like a retention tool. So for instance, there'll be a vesting schedule. Like maybe you get a hundred shares of stock this year, but it won't, it will vet, you know, it won't vest until three years from now. So basically it's to keep people hanging out for three years. Um, I actually had some RSUs and my former employer that um, was actually a merger situation. So we got bought by a bigger company and they awarded a lot of the employees restricted stock units. And it was a three-year vesting schedule, but you also had to sign a three-year contract in order to get them. So it was really interesting because you get to watch the price fluctuate and you actually own them. Like I got the dividends every quarter, but um, I couldn't sell them. Uh, and I had to wait until they vested, which I did. Um, and it, it really kept people, I mean, it's a retention tool. We were kind of stuck there, but at the same time we were paid to do that. So, um, and my husband's company though, he just started getting these and it's, uh, my understanding there is it's a smaller, just annual award for, um, more senior level employees. So over time they could really build up, um, but he can't, he won't be able to sell his for three years. Actually, his is different. He vests in three years, but then he still can't sell for another two years um, unless he leaves the company. So I think they can have different ways that they're organized. Um, one of the key points, though, is they don't, you're not taxed on them until they vest. So if they accumulate and they vest in one year, um, for one thing, you are going to want to have the cash to pay the taxes on them if it's a substantial amount without selling necessarily, especially if you can't sell them in his case. Um, and in my case, they all, you know, 60% of my invested in one year, which was basically like three years worth of bonus. So it was definitely a lot in one year um, to pay taxes and it spiked our income, you know, into another tax bracket. So if you have some capital losses or something, it might pay to save them to recognize in that year. If you know you're going to have a RSU's vest uh, in a specific year, don't sell a rental property that same year. Um, you know, if that's going to be a huge gain, I mean, you could definitely be looking at uh, without even really necessarily, you know, you might not think, oh, I'm going to be in this high tax bracket, but it just takes one or two events like that if you've got all these balls in the air for, if you're not watching that, for it to suddenly really spike up. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think a lot of people get in these situations and they may not understand what an RSU is and then they find themselves in that situation and they're in a higher tax bracket and then they've got to have the cash to pay and and it's kind of like a, oh, crap moment. Like, what, what just happened? Okay, now I really understand how these work. Yeah. Well, and I know this would be bad advice for some people in the tech industry, at least over the last 10 years, but my advice also would be to cash them out as soon as you can and don't let them just pile up even once they've vested and everything. Um, as we all know, back in 08, there were some folks with a lot of employer stock who really got kind of screwed. So, um, and I know, of course, if you worked at, you know, Facebook or Google or anything like that over the last few years, that might not have been the best strategy, but um, in general, I think for most folks, it doesn't pay to to let to, to get too excited about your own company stock. Everybody who works at every company is excited about their own company stock. So there's always a reason to be optimistic. But at the same time, I, I'm I'm a big believer in diversification, and that's kind of always been my strategy with the real estate and the stocks. Um, 
I wanted to have like a three-legged stool is how I think about my retirement and maxing out all the Roths, IRAs and 401ks and doing all that basic stuff was kind of one leg. But on the off chance that Great Depression 2 hits right when I retire, um, the residential real estate, paid off real estate was to me like another leg of the stool for income. Um, and then as far as the third leg, so far it's TBD. I've thought about, you know, owning a business one day or having royalties from something or maybe just part-time work, who knows. But um, I've always kind of wanted to have at least a few different streams of income. Interesting. So you're young, you've got a high net worth, y'all have done very well financially, you've got, you know, grown your incomes to a super high level. Where do you go from here? Do you have goals in the future for a target net worth? Or, you know, you just kind of talked about that three-legged stool, but you haven't quite figured out what that is. Where do you go from here? Yeah, um, my main goal has always just been to have options. And of course, as your life changes, um, the options, you know, things can obviously evolve, but just maintaining flexibility has always been huge for me. So building out some liquidity um, is a goal. We've kind of done that to some degree, but we keep, you know, stumbling upon these deals and, you know, it's hard not to just be like, well, yeah, let's just use all our cash and and dump it in this. So I do think it would probably pay for us to have, I'd like to have, you know, two or 300 grand in brokerage or cash, um, you know, for opportunities that might come along or, but also to maintain flexibility. But Net worth wise, I think we're almost really right at the point where I feel like I could call us financially independent because if we never worked another day, we could, you know, live on about 80K a year, which would probably mean having to downsize from the house that we're in now, but we could definitely do it comfortably. Um, But, you know, like I said, we don't know if we're planning to have kids. Um, That's a big question mark. But we're also in our 30s, so um, a lot can change. My husband could die and I might want to get remarried. He could leave me, you know, things I'm not going to try to guess where we're going to be in 50 years. So I'd be a lot more comfortable with four to 5 million in net worth before we think about, you know, giving up these careers we've built. Um, It's really our net worth's grown at about 350 grand a year. So it's not terribly far away and we pretty much like our jobs. So it's not, you know, if I hated my job, I might have a different outlook on it, but we've worked really hard to get where we are and finally can kind of relax a little bit, develop some expertise and some relationships. So, you know, the first, I think, five or seven years of most careers is pretty much a grind. And it, it can always be a grind some days, but um, I've definitely gotten to the point where I don't want to just throw it all away just because I could live on what I barely have, you know. So, um, yeah, if we could spend about 100 to 120 grand a year after taxes, I'd definitely be uh, consider that more retirement level income for us. I mean, again, living in a city, not knowing what our family might look like and all those, you know, health insurance obviously is the big uh, question for everybody on what that might cost or what health in general medical expenses, what those could be. So, um, yeah, long story short, I don't have a specific goal, but our target, I think we want to work another four years and then reevaluate. What has your savings rate been over this journey of, of accumulating this couple million dollars that you've, that you've accumulated? Yeah. Um, on my own prior to getting married, it was, well, it started out about 15% from day one and um, I got it up to about 20 to 22% by the time I was got married when I was 30. Um, and now we've probably, we've increased it every year because our incomes have gone up and right now it's right around 40% of growth. Uh, and that's pretty much where we're comfortable. Well, although I say that if our incomes keep going up, which I don't expect them to at least dramatically in the near term, um, I guess it would take up, but 
I mean, we pretty much spend what we're comfortable spending and um, the remainder is, it equates to about 40%. So I definitely think 20 is a good target. If you start out in debt, obviously I include debt repayment, um, at least accelerated debt repayment as part of saving. Just, you know, if you're going to pay extra on your house, I don't think that should not count um, versus putting in a brokerage, for instance. So it's always, I think savings rate can be a, a weird moving figure. For instance, we decided to refinance into a 15-year fixed a few years ago um, because we were paying double mortgage payments anyway, and we did that for about a year, and I was finally confident enough that, okay, we could actually just get a lower rate and rebuy if we're going to do this you know, considerably. But then it makes it look like on paper, once the mortgage rate is, payment is fixed at a higher rate, well, that, that's not savings anymore. That's monthly payments. So suddenly our savings rate drops when I refi. So, I mean, there's, there's those things that I always kind of take it with a grain of salt of you know, and some people just have higher base expenses. I mean, for, if you're a single parent, for instance, or if you're on a, you know, if you're making 40 grand versus 400 grand, there's, there's only so much wiggle room there. So um, I don't get too hung up on it, but I definitely think you should always target a decent double digit savings rate before really considering anything else. You've given some great advice. Is there anything else that you would uh, advise our listeners to do? Uh, we talked about just getting started, which I think is huge. And networking, meeting people, just talking to the people around you. Um, it's a bit amazing the people I've just met and the opportunities I've had, for instance, that realtor I knew, just from kind of putting myself out there, if you will, um, even before you feel like you know what you're doing. Uh, but I think one unique thing is just investing your career if you have one. Um, I mean, some people really hate their field and just want to get out immediately. That's one thing. Or if you're drowning in consumer debt, um, that's another, but if you have a career path, you've kind of invest, uh, begun and you have a, especially if it required a specific degree, um, you know, stick with it. There were some years where I definitely was like, "Ugh, you know, how much longer do I have to work? And even when we got married, it was like, how long do we have to do this? But once you get past that sort of seven to 10 year mark, a lot of pro- professions get a lot less stressful. You've developed some expertise and relationships. Even the hours can decrease unless you're a physician or something where they just never decrease. But um, you know, I feel like a lot of people are kind of quitting right when it starts to get easier, even in the fire community where, um, you know, anybody who can kind of get to where they can consider fire, if they're that ambitious and, um, you know, talented is probably going to keep working anyway. So to me, it's been a real mindset, mindset shift the last couple of years. I switched employers and it made a night and day difference. And I really still do the same thing I did before. So sometimes it's just finding the right company or finding the right niche or just getting to where it's not as hard anymore. And, um, you know, the income really starts to finally ramp up. So I think a lot of people just switch from one thing to another and do a, a string of entry-level jobs and kind of, you know, of course it's discouraging, but if you really just stick with it and invest in one career, whatever it might be, I think that can really be, I mean, I didn't even consider my career as like a path to wealth. And I was reading all these books and deciding whether am I going to do real estate or stocks. It didn't even really occur to me like to invest in my career specifically, uh, and that that would really be the driver of my wealth, which as it's turned out is definitely going to be. So um, I think that's, that's a huge thing to look into. And a lot of the blogs now focus on getting out of your career instead of maximizing it. So Awesome. Meg, net worth of 2.3 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Meg. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.